That night, they made camp on the southern edge of the bogs, halfway between the King's Road and the river. It was there Theon Greyjoy brought them further word from her uncle. Sir Brendan says to tell you he's crossed swords with the Lannisters. There are a dozen scouts who won't be reporting back to Lord Tywin any time soon. Or ever. He grinned. Sir Adam Mobran commands their outriders, and he's pulling back south, burning as he goes. He knows where we are, more or less, but the Blackfish vows he will not know when we split. Unless Lord Frey tells him. Catelyn said sharply. Theon, when you return to my uncle, tell him he is to place his best bowmen around the twins day and night with orders to bring down any raven they see leaving the battlements. I want no birds bringing word of my son's movements to Lord Tywin. Sir Brendan has seen to it already, my lady. Theon replied with a cocky smile. A few more blackbirds and we should have enough to bake a pie. I'll save you their feathers for a hat. She ought to have known that Brendan Blackfish would be well ahead of her. Brotherhood is a strong aspect within A Song of Ice and Fire's great collection of character-based themes, with Jamie and Tyrion, Rob and John, the three Baratheons as prime examples, and, well, you know, there's, there's plenty of others. I don't need to list them. These are very familiar, of course, because we've seen a lot of these brotherly interactions firsthand through various POVs. But, of course, these relationships exist in the past as well, through older generations, the so-called puppet masters whose strings our main characters dance upon, who in turn danced upon the strings of their parents. Sir Brendan Tully, a.k.a. Blackfish, certainly had to do his share of dancing, not only to his parents and the conditions of the realm around him, but to his brother's tune. And that was a cause for a lot of conflict. And that conflict indirectly led him to being in the right place at the right time to come help save the day and assist Rob Stark establish his new kingdom. Now, even as that kingdom and its king has fallen, Blackfish continues the struggle. So hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, it's good to be back covering the books again after a while. It's so much fun to dive into the much greater level of detail. We couldn't possibly do a full episode on TV Blackfish. There just isn't enough to go on. We would have to draw on book material to fill in the gaps, or maybe it would be a really short episode. But this, political conditions of a time when he was born, throughout the time now, there's just so much to get into and really excited to be doing this. Get, want to give a few bits of thanks before we get to the meat and material. I want to thank our co-writers, mostly Joe Buckley, who wrote about half of this episode, and Rhaenys Targaryen, whose timeline expertise was particularly valuable in this episode because we don't have precise dates on either Brynden or Hoster's birth, nor Edmure, and a lot of these other Tullys. So playing with these ranges of dates makes it a little trickier than when we have precise dates. But in any case... We nailed a lot down. You're going to like it. Thanks to Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' First Sword, and our Dragon Rider patrons, Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, Rider of Masla Cartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons, Telenes the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black, Jinx of House Lier, Green Queen of the Rainwood, Rider of Erogenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. We're going back to the time of Sir Brendan Tully, the Blackfish's early days before he had either a nickname or even a sir. He might not be your first thought when either of these subjects are brought up. He's an unmarried uncle and he doesn't have any descendants of his own, but he is a family man despite that and he's pulled quite a few strings of his own, especially that of his brother, who was of course pulling his strings. 
Or perhaps it would be better to say he didn't pull strings so much as refused to let his own be pulled. And when a puppet doesn't behave the way that its master wants, it kind of has a trickle-down or trickle-up effect. Brendan's repeated refusals to marry, for example, had a difficult-to-determine but clearly significant impact on Lord Hoster's plans. In general, his impact on politics was significant but indirect, though it is not his forte and it is something he, like many soldiers, disdains. In addition to refusing to be part of the game, he was, is, and will continue to be, if you ask us, a major player when it comes to warfare. And warfare is a major part of the game. Even modern soldiers are told to use the KISS principle as often as possible. KISS stands for keep it simple, stupid. So when I say the soldierly way is the simple way, it's not an insult. It's, in fact, the opposite. Keeping things simple is a form of wisdom. Making things complicated doesn't make you smarter. Sometimes it does the opposite. And what house makes its goals simpler than House Tully? Family, duty, honor, in that order, right? Well, maybe not, but usually. And Blackfish is named so because he's different. His nickname derives from his brother naming him a maverick. That's the implication of that black sheep of the family cliche that gets thrown around in our world as well as in Westeros. And this is what Hoster Tully was referring to, except he, you know, called him a goat instead of a sheep. Same difference. But even when he left Hoster, he went to go guard Hoster's daughter Lysa. And many years later, when he left Lysa's service, he did it to go fight for Riverrun and the King in the North, who, would not forget, Rob is half Tully himself and looks like a Tully. That's family and duty right there. And as for honor, well, even the Blackfish's bitterest foes believe he deserves a noble death. Being a great warrior and commander who stays out of politics, that's a really good way to be considered honorable and to be respected. Though not getting your hands dirty in politics is a little different than getting your hands dirty in war. Yeah, Westerosi respect the latter a lot more than the former, generally speaking. And Brendan Blackfish is one of the most famous knights in the land, period. He has a major influence on the War of Five Kings, and he's a huge figure in the life of one of our main POV characters, Catelyn. He appears poised to play a continuing role as well, a topic with many subtopics that we will explore fully by the end of this episode. Brendan Tully also sparks some debate whether he's just a good man, a selfish, self-contained old grump, or somewhere in between, whichever is true, Brendan is multifaceted and complicated, as you would expect coming from George. He is the type of man who's simultaneously fondly regarded as a warm parent by Catelyn, even though he's not a parent, and revered as a hero by young Jamie Lannister, all while having long-standing mysteries of his own. The Brendan we meet in the series is aged, nearing his 60s, which is an accomplishment for any man in Westeros, let alone a seasoned warrior. Surviving that long is hard. And yet he remains at least reminiscent of the young warrior he was. Even if he isn't quite as quick or strong as he once was, his abilities as a commander have only grown. He's always been brave, but over the years he's accrued experience, glory, and his fame has spread. He's basically now a living legend. But this is the History of Westeros podcast, so we have to go back to the past before we reach present Brendan, find what earned him his fame and adulation. Early Life 
Between 238 and 240 AC, a new heir was born to the Lord of Riverrun, and he was named Hoster, the future father of Catelyn, Lysa, and Edmure. While he was born to inherit, as we knew he later did, his first heir would have been his younger brother, born some five years later, between 242 and 245, and that's our subject, Brendan. No ordinary name. While Blackfish is a standout nickname that is used more often than his real name, Brendan is an extremely notable name, as Brendan Rivers, a.k.a. Bloodraven, had recently become Lord Commander of the Night's Watch after a long, famous, or perhaps infamous, career as Hand of the King. A Dance with Dragons, Brand 3. I have an Uncle Brendan. He's my mother's uncle, really. Brendan Blackfish, he's called. Brand said. Your uncle may have been named for me. Some are still. Not so many as before. Men forget. Only the trees remember. May have been named for me is technically correct, but clearly an understatement. Sure, they might just like the name, but it's literally impossible that the Lord and Lady of Riverrun didn't somehow take note of the fact that Bloodraven, famous in the realm for decades, the son of the king and Melissa Blackwood, who's a vassal of the Tullys, was named Brendan as well. I mean, come on, that's that can't just be coincidence. But Bloodraven isn't the only connection to the crown, so it gets deeper. In fact... Another Blackwood was even closer. The Queen of Westeros, in fact, was a Blackwood herself, none other than Black Betha. And when Brynden was born, she had been queen for nine years, or roughly, at least nine years. And this nod to a Blackwood may not have pleased the Brackens, but they surely would have less hatred for this particular Brynden, especially compared to Bloodraven, right? The current Lord Bracken, Jonos, as in around the time of the, where the books are now, tells Jamie. I'm fond of the man, I won't deny that. And Hoster reveals, when he's near death, that Lord Bracken had offered his daughter to marry Blackfish. That was one of the many marriages that Blackfish rejected. And this is probably Lord Jonas's sister that we're talking about, since we're about one generation back when that offer was made. The Tullys had a perfect record of siding with the crown against the Blackfires, and were notable for their support of Aegon the Conqueror himself, meaning that the Tullys had a long record of backing House Targaryen, one of the first hands of the king for Aegon the Conqueror was a Tully. Brynden is a name ripe with meaning, given all this history of the Targaryens and the Tullys and the Blackwoods. And you might say, wait a sec, Hoster Tully turned on House Targaryen at the outset of Robert's Rebellion. What are you talking about, perfect record? Well, they had a perfect record, they just don't anymore. And it's always been easy to justify Hoster turning on Ares. Anyone turning on Ares had fairly good justification, especially those families who were directly impacted. But there's more to it than that, and it happened right around the time we're dealing with. Something was to come that would shake up that loyalty, and what was once a stable and proud tradition of the Tully dynasty would begin to erode right before the time Blackfish was born. The Royal Tully Bombs This period of time would prove quite famous for births of major characters, including the mothers and fathers of many of the adults who are now in their primes, Tywin, Kevin, and Jenna Lannister, all born around this time. Ares Targaryen himself, a little before. Stefan Baratheon around this time. Barris and Selmy is about six to nine years older than Blackfish. And given how those two are compared a lot, and how they would all, these men, would interact at major points throughout the coming half century or so, it's interesting how close they are in birth. Perhaps due to their staunch loyalty or esteem or for reasons outside of our knowledge, House Tully maintained those ties dating back to the conquest. 
certain Celia Tully at this time was daughter of the Lord of River Run, betrothed to Jaehaerys, the second son of King Aegon V, the Unlikely, in the year 237. And this is about five to eight years before Brynden was born, and only about a year or three before Hoster's. So there's a chance that she, the Celia Tully, that is, was their elder sister. But it's more likely she was their aunt, for reasons too lengthy to bring up here. Just trust our timeline expert, Rainey. So I double-checked her work, and I agree with that conclusion. But there's also a third possibility, which is that she's like a half-sister. Uh, you know, maybe this Lord of Riverrun married more than once. That happens sometimes. Two years later, though, Prince Duncan the Small renounced his claim as the king's heir in order to marry his beloved common girl, Jenny of Oldstones. And that made Jaehaerys the heir to the throne, which meant Celia was on track to be a Tully queen of Westeros, something never before seen. Soon came a revolt in the Stormlands as Duncan was betrothed to Lorne Lyle Baratheon's daughter, and his daughter was marrying the crown prince. Of course, that's Duncan. So he lost out on that, which is a big deal. You, I thought you were going to have your daughter become the queen, and then, ah, sorry. <laughs> That's canceled. You would wonder how the Tullys would react to this. You know, they wouldn't be happy that this betrothal was broken publicly, but on the other hand, that made Celia, you know, in line to become queen. So they would probably assist the crown in this rebellion to set down the Baratheons. So imagine their disappointment, the Tullys, that is, when... A year later, not unlike Lyanna, and his own grandson Rhaegar, Prince Jaehaeri snuck off with his sister Prince Shara, and they married in secret and consummated it. And they were legitimately in love, and King Aegon and Queen Betha Blackwood just accepted the marriage at that point. There wasn't much they could do. This very much upset Lord Tully, as well as Lord Tyrell, whose son Luthor instead married a queen rather than Princess Shara. The Queen of Thorns, that is, not a Targaryen. It likely upset much of the Reach and Riverlands as well. Because, hey, the Riverlands was probably feeling kind of proud about the prospect of Celia becoming queen. That would have been the second straight Riverlands queen. Because Beth the Blackwood, you know, was queen before. But unlike the Stormlands, the Riverlands and Reach didn't actually rebel. But we all know houses hate to be humiliated like this. Not everyone reacts as poorly to losing their crack at having a queen in their family as, say, Walder Frey, another Riverlands house, nor even Lionel Baratheon. Nonetheless, just because they didn't rebel doesn't mean it wasn't a huge insult. We're told that it was exactly that. So with Hoster Tully being the future heir, he spent his childhood being raised for lordship by a father who had suffered this particularly great insult at the hands of House Targaryen. So from a very early age... This was, you know, in his sphere of existence, and it probably sank in. It would likely be years before his family set this herd aside, if ever, and thus Brendan also would have been raised in this attitude alongside this recent insult that may have been a big part of what they believed. Remember in all this in particular when we get to Robert's Rebellion, as men and women of honor all over Westeros struggled Oath to liege or mad king, which do we do? It's a tough choice, but if you had some sort of insult from a previous generation, well, that might tip the scales, and House Tully had a particular insult of, that, that I've just mentioned. So you can see why they sided with the non-Targaryens. Of course, there's other reasons for that, you know, the South Rhine conspiracy talk and all that, but still, this insult probably mattered on top of all that. But 
when Robert Trevelyan broke out, Blackfish was about 40. So we got a lot of history between now and then to cover. So let's move away from the setting in which he was born and move on to the man himself. The Blackfish Knight. Okay, so he hadn't actually earned that nickname yet, and he wears the Tully colors most of the time, but we're going to use it now to simplify and to differentiate him from Bloodraven. Too many Brindons in these parts. Blackfish was apparently knighted in his mid-teens, which is very much on the early side of things. This also means that his father, who died in 264 or later, lived to see his son achieve this honor. Though, unfortunately, we don't have any details on what he did to get knighted so fast. But considering his personality, the type of man he was and still is, it's not hard to guess that it was just general greatness, <laughs> general talent, just good with the sword, brave, all that stuff. That's basically what gets you knighthood in the early days anyway. So it's probably that. As we see with multiple other characters, like Brendan being a second son, was set on a different path as his brother. Not unlike that of Ned Stark, right? Rob and John had much different paths. Brendan's not a bastard, but you can kind of see the difference between a first son and a second son. Like Bran. Bran is the second son, and he thought he was going to become a knight. You know, and that's basically the track that Brendan was on, being a second son. Kind of like Ned Stark, also a second son, but the Riverlands equivalent, which is knighthood instead of, you know, the northern equivalent, which doesn't really have a name. And of course, a lot of second, third, etc. sons become better fighters than their firstborn brothers. And it just makes sense, right? Because they get to focus on fighting while the firstborn has to learn how to rule and all these other things in addition to learning how to fight. So it pays to focus on one thing. As Brendan Beefish, a.k.a. Jeff Hartline, nicknamed after our subject today, has noted in his Blood of the Conqueror series, there's a kind of a set road for knighthood with milestones, right? You get a, you become, you're a page, then you're a squire, and then you eventually become a knight, earning your spurs. Now, Brendan followed this model, though we don't know if he actually did the page thing. Some people skip that. He may, he may have done that, but maybe not. What we do know is that he was sent off to squire, along with Norbert, the future lord of House Vance, at Castle Derry. Now, House Derry was noted for its staunch loyalty to House Targaryen. So that might come up later. We don't know the name of this particular Lord Derry, but looking at the dates, it's pretty likely the father of Raymond Derry, and Raymond was Lord of Derry at the beginning of the series. Now, he's dead now. So as you would expect, not only is Brendan being trained in arms from a young age, he's rubbing shoulders with his father's vassals and other people around, establishing ties and friendships, as we see every smart family do in Westeros. And of course he's leaving an impact because, as we said, everyone in Westeros, with few exceptions, really respects people who are good at fighting. So anywhere Brendan went, probably he was impressing people. And as we see, even from his enemies, even when he's old, this richest form of social currency, martial skill, comes up again. He's so often compared to Barristan Selmy, and Selmy is often considered one of the best we've ever heard of from any era. And Selmy was more of a, a white knight, right? I mean, he wears the colors white even because of the Kingsguard. Brendan's more of a black f knight. <laughs> Through the whole of his life to this point, the king had been Aegon V, the unlikely, right? Brother of Maester Aemon. Egg. This is Egg we're talking about. He's the one who sent Bloodraven to the wall. Politics aside, he seemed to have a lot in common with his namesake, right? Obviously, 
we just talked about how Blackfish doesn't get involved in politics too much, and Bloodraven was very involved. But outside of that, skilled archer, skilled swordsman, skilled at controlling information. Blackfish's skill with information control is battlefield information, not like you know, not the politics, not master of whispers type stuff. We're talking about killing ravens and enemy scouts, all that, while deploying scouts and messengers of his own. He understands this probably better than anyone we know. And we see him nail that shot in his brother's funeral scene, right? <laughs> Lighting the funeral boat on fire from a distance. His namesake, Bloodraven, vanished beyond the wall, officially speaking circa 252, when Brendan himself, Blackfish, would have been around 7 to 10 years old. So there's no chance that they had contact, you know, face-to-face, but perhaps some of the lords of the Riverlands employed some of his personal guard, and certainly they told stories. But the Raven's teeth, many of them, that's Bloodraven's personal guard, many of them took the black with him, but... Given that many of them did, not all, well, where did they go? A lot of them maybe went to get jobs with different lords around the realm. Having been with Bloodraven gives them a little extra clout. And maybe some of them went around as trainers or masters at arms. And, you know, maybe uh, Brendan had some contact with some of these guys. This Black Knight versus White Knight concept is something I want to come back to. Because I think it's really interesting to consider. Typically... The Black Knight is associated with evil, but not really in Westeros, and certainly not the case with Brendan Tully. (laughs) I wouldn't call him chivalrous, though. Uh, He's not really a knight who puts protecting the weak particularly high on his list, at least not the weak commonborn. Weak members of his family, maybe. Duty sounds noble, but consider that Sandor Clegane was doing his duty when he killed Micah. Corrin Halfhand would surely approve of duty before honor for example. Remember that he told John that their personal honor means nothing next to their duty to protect the realm. What the Night's Watch gives up is their families, and that's the first word for House Tully, though. So that's where the comparison kind of falls apart. But contrast this to Selmy, who also gave up his inheritance, leaving his family, right? He doesn't protect them at all. He's given them up entirely. Even though taking the white brings honor to your family, it means you're no longer really a part of the family. So it's kind of a weird dichotomy. And the Night's Watch, like Selmy's oath to the Kingsguard, is gone. I mean, this is a lifelong oath they give. So he's kind of left his family. I always thought that was kind of an odd little thing to square. Blackfish wasn't doing that kind of thing. It's funny, though, despite not joining one of these martial orders like the Night's Watch or the Kingsguard, he really lives a lot like one of them. Didn't have his own family. Right? And the Night's Watch puts duty first. The Kingsguard focuses on protecting one particular family, right? The Blackfish is also kind of focused on protecting one particular family. It's just his, not the royal family. He's kind of like a Kingsguard with his, to his own house who gets to leave whenever he wants because he didn't actually swear an oath. <laughs> so he has more freedom than a Kingsguard or Man of the Watch, but he exercises basically none of these freedoms except for, you know, leaving Lysa and leaving Hoster. But basically, he's just as chaste, just as dutiful, just as dedicated as any of the best from either the Night's Watch or the Kingsguard. And that kind of makes me wonder why he was never chosen for Ares or Jaehaerys' Kingsguard. Maybe he didn't want to be. But it could be that several, if not most, or all of the Kingsguard died at Summerhall before Brynden was famous. So you would think that that was a time when maybe the, the ranks were thin and someone like him who was kind of coming into his own might have been the guy to take a place. 
But maybe not. Maybe there's more to it. If not for Ares making his move and giving a white cloak to Jamie, maybe it would have been Blackfish. But again, maybe he would have refused. Not that refusing the Kingsguard is something that comes up much, but Blackfish, I could see him doing that. I could see him being different because he's different so many other ways. And not that having Jamie at court worked out for Ares, <laughs> but Blackfish, can you imagine him at court? I don't know. He just doesn't seem to fit, right? He doesn't mince words like Varus or even Selmy. Selmy's straightforward with battles, right? He's an open kind of guy. And he's, but he's very careful with his words. He speaks politely. He doesn't want to offend. Meanwhile, Blackfish is the opposite in both cases. He's different in that he says what's on his mind, and he conducts battles in kind of a sneaky and subtle way. A Game of Thrones, Catelyn Six. What madness is this? He said bluntly. Brendan Tully had never been a man to blunt the edge of his words. A night ascent with the moon not even full? Even Lysa should know that's an invitation to a broken neck. Note there that the Knight of the Gate is calling the Lady of the Eyrie by her first name while directly insulting her by saying even Lysa should know in front of a few of her subjects. <laughs> that's not normally how, you know, knights speak about their you know, superiors, but here he is just saying what's on his mind. Selmy would not talk like this. Let's not forget how he also tears into Edmure after the Battle of Stone Mill. He's, again, the reverse of Selmy here. Sneaky on the battlefield, but extremely straightforward with his words. He's described as blunt more than once, and really, you don't need to have seen that description because the way he talks just points that out directly. So again, figuratively, Black Knight kind of means evil, but... It doesn't apply here. It's the literal sense in which Brendan is a black knight, meaning he's a knight of shadows and darkness who makes expert use of surprise and secrecy. So it's just the first time we see him in action. His leadership is crucial to the ambush, which is called a battle, Battle of the uh, in the Whispering Woods, which takes place at night. Given his great expertise in these forms of warfare, perhaps that's the aptitude he showed at an early age. Not just fighting, but... Sneaking around on the battlefield and ambushing and things like that. Having a talent for that sort of thing. But there weren't any major wars that we know of around the time he was knighted. So it had to be something. But it wasn't, you know, actual combat experience in, in a major war. Again, that we know of. Regardless of how he earned his early minor fame, we do know how he became known throughout the realm. And it didn't take much longer than this. Family. Fame name in that order no not in that order first the fame then the family then the name in the year 260 when brendan was somewhere between 18 to 21 one last attempt to take the throne from the targaryens was made by a blackfire claimant it was the war of the nine penny kings and around the time of this knighting was also the tragedy of Summerhall which led to the crowning of Jaehaerys II. We all know what comes next. The War of Nine Penny Kings is responsible for so much of the relationships we see on page. As we've noted many times over, it was really like a, a wartime boys club that stretched over the next four decades. So many important meetings happened here that lasted a lifetime. Uh, like Barris and Selmy, like the fate of House Baelish, and like the twisted friendship of Tywin Lannister and Aerys Targaryen, Brendan was fully formed in the war. His exploits are said to have earned him fame across the Seven Kingdoms, and it's not redundant to say that only Barristan earned more from the fighting in terms of renown. 
Despite being knighted at a young age, Brendan was likely an afterthought to most in the war at first. Because he was just a second son that most people hadn't heard of. Sure, he'd been knighted early, but we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of Westerosi commanded by veterans from other regions. I mean, there's guys, again, Tywin Lannister, heir to the West, Hoster Tully, his brother, heir to the Riverlands, Ormond Baratheon, Hand of the King, and Lord of Storm's End, Stefan Baratheon, his heir, and by War's End, it's Lord, because Ormond was killed by none other than Maelys the Montress himself. Gerald Hightower, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, was there. And he took over command after Ormond's death as well. Brendan was way down the pecking order, but by the end, his name was on the lips of many. So we can safely say he accomplished some pretty impressive feats. And one day, maybe in Fire and Blood, or maybe A Song of Ice and Fire, we'll learn what some of those feats were. It wouldn't be command, probably, because he was so young then, and there were so many veterans with higher standing. But the war was fought on the Stepstones, and was said to be bloody. The Stepstones would would not be a place where you would have typical pitched battles. There's probably a lot of back and forth and ambushing and surprise attacks. There's not a lot of castles there. So Blackfish might have been right at home. or that, And this may have explained why he made such a name for himself. To take a step back from a meta perspective, an interesting thing about Blackfish is that most of what we know of him is through Catelyn's point of view. Until Jamie comes along... And by then, Cat doesn't have a point of view anymore, and so we see him through mostly Jamie's eyes. To Cat, he's a beloved, protective uncle, whom she has fond memories of from her earliest of early memories. To Jamie, he's a hero. To use that term, living legend, again, that would apply here. And also, he was an idol. A Feast for Crows, Jamie Five. But at that age, no girl interested Jamie half so much as Hoster's famous brother, who had won renown fighting the ninepenny kings upon the stepstones. At table, he had ignored poor Lysa whilst pressing Brendan Tully for tales of Maelys the Monstrous and the Ebon Prince. I feel you, Jamie. We would like to press him for those tales, too. Some other time, perhaps. Lord Hoster, matchmaker. In 264 AC, or a little later, Hoster and Brendan's father passed, and Hoster inherited River Run, joining that new wave of ninepenny veteran blood coming into power, as we just discussed. Brendan himself was, for a time, Hoster's heir, but he was never heir to River Run because Catelyn was born before their father died. You know, a little dynastic confusion there. But it doesn't even really matter because Brendan probably didn't care. He doesn't seem like the type to one to rule you know like like Ned Stark always thought it was all meant for his brother and didn't really ever want to be lord Brendan kind of seems like he's cut from the same cloth and he actually got his wish he didn't have to rule River Run at any point despite not wanting to be heir it didn't sever his ties with the political landscape right politics has a way of involving you even when you don't want to be involved and now Hoster, who's perhaps giddy with all the new friends he'd made at this Ninepenny King's social, he had strong ideas, though. He was very involved in politics, and he seemed to be pretty good at it. He had these marriages that he planned, and he, unlike a lot of typical High Lords, his marriages went outside of their region. Well, some of them, anyway. He even found an incredibly good match for Brendan, Bethany Redwine of the Reach, and as we know, the Red Wines certainly weren't a family to be sniffed at, and they certainly aren't now. They have the largest navy in Westeros right now. Well, maybe not for long, thanks to Euron, but that's still a big deal, right? They ruled the Arbor 
still do. Well, again, Euron has something to say about that. But they're a huge family, rich and powerful. And given that the region is next door to the Riverlands, or the Reach meeting, not not uh, the Arbor specifically, but the, the fact that they also border the Westerlands, this is a great way to kind of tie things together. And remember, the Westerlands had just suffered through the rain Tarbeck Rebellion. And again, Tywin Lannister was on the rise right about then. In addition, there's a little bit more to it. The Red Wines were among the three houses, along with the Tullys and the Tyrells, who lost out on their Targaryen marriages with uh, under the you know under the kingship of Egg and his wife Betha Blackwood. So it's interesting that these two jilted families would try to form a marriage alliance. Maybe it's related to that. I mean, this is still a you know a generation later, but this could definitely be connected. You know. But there would be no red wine Tully marriage. No Bethany Blackfish. <laughs> he refused it, and he kept refusing after that. And Hoster just won't let it go afterwards, and it's become it becomes a part of him. People outside of their family talk about it. You know, the Lannisters are talking about it. Some of the people that are with Jamie at the Siege of Riverrun bring it up, like, oh, he's so stubborn, even his own brother couldn't move him to the marriage bed. It's just something that is associated with him constantly. And it's the beginning as well, of the fracturing, right? When they were young, Hoster and Brynden were close. But this uh, was a major beginning of a dispute that would never be truly resolved. Hoster was all about the good of the family, the politics, the duty, as he saw it, right? We're not saying that Hoster was in the wrong, but we are saying that Brynden and Hoster saw things differently. One of the largest conversations about Brynden Tully is why he turned down the marriage, comes up at the Siege of Riverrun again, and it comes up in a lot of places. It's basically just associated with stubbornness, though. That's what people call it, but it might be more than that. Let's make some guesses, because we don't actually know. George R. Martin himself said that he won't expand on this reasoning at all. We're left to our own devices. George will not give any clues on it. He's been asked point blank, and he maintains... His uh, air of mystery, which might mean it's relevant to something later, or it might mean George just hasn't fully fleshed it out himself yet. Either way, I hope we find out one day. It's probably not something shallow, though, like just he wasn't attracted to her because Hoster arranged several marriage proposals and what, are we supposed to think that he's just that picky? I don't know, it doesn't seem like him. And it's also, could be that he's gay, but... You know, there's plenty of examples of gay people in Westeros getting married and having families while, you know, just playing along or whatever you want to call it. Plenty of examples of gay men fathering children, both in the real world and in Westeros, so this isn't enough to go on either. It's certainly possible, though. But there's really no actual evidence for it. Just the fact that he never married isn't enough to declare something like that. It just remains a possibility. But perhaps Brendan didn't want to see the Tullys so embroiled with these other houses, right? His brother was making unusual marriages outside of the region, and maybe Brendan was against that. There's, you know, again, though, that maybe doesn't work either because he spurned a Bracken marriage and a Frey marriage, too, and those are both Riverlands marriages. So any combination of these are possible, but there's no singular piece of evidence that he's just stubborn or that he's gay or that he's both or that he's against these alliances. These are all just possibilities. He kept it to himself just like George R. R. Martin. So maybe Blackfish is taking a page from the man himself. <laughs> it may well be that 
he had some other love that he refused to spurn. Hey, like Barristan himself, the man we're constantly comparing him to, who had a thing for Ashara Dane. But again, total guess. Faint possibility, no evidence, just ideas. The only real direction we get from the text could be interpreted many ways, too. And this is Catelyn, who is very confident that Brynden would never marry. Game of Thrones, Catelyn 11. Even on his deathbed, Catelyn thought sadly, he has not wed, you know that father, nor will he ever. So yeah, we just don't know. Martin hasn't given us a lot of clues, and we may never learn. It may be one of those things that George decides to leave open-ended. There's also one last possibility, which is that he's just stubborn. He doesn't like to be told to, what to do, he's proud, he does things his own way, and he just doesn't want to have matchmaking done for him. Maybe it's just a decades-long case of digging his heels in. But don't forget what a big deal it is. Refusing your liege lord is really rare. And it might just be because Brendan is so much a factor on his own, because he's so famous on his own, and that's why he can get away with it, you know? Someone of lesser standing might have just had to go along with it. Regardless, he refused, and it was left that way. And the argument resulting in more arguments drove a wedge between them. As the years went on, this bitterness only grew. It's likely that this didn't help calm Hoster that Bethany Redwine went on to marry Mathis Rowan, a prominent lord of the Reach, gave him three children. You can imagine Hoster seething over the years, watching his prize catch solidify another house. An interesting side note is that one of Bethany Redwine's children was the accuser of Darian of the Night's Watch. Random connection there. Darian obviously went on to accompany Sam, Gilly, and Maester Eamon on their way to Old Town, and in Bravos, he abandoned them to go drink and uh, be with prostitutes. So Sam, Gilly, and Maester Eamon can all squarely place this problem at Brynden's feet. <laughs> nah, just kidding. It might be worth noting that Hoster was at least potentially right about producing offspring. The Tullys did end up needing help later on, but I don't really see it that way. It's worth throwing out there. But if Brendan had his own children, then, you know, they might have helped out during the war. But, eh, I think that's that's a little much. But there would be more heirs as opposed to just Edmure. Right now, Edmure is the heir, and he's in captivity, and that complicates things. If he had married, who knows what he would be. He'd never be the man he is now. He wouldn't have his reputation. He probably wouldn't have his famous customized Tully sigil either. The Obsidian Trout. The Game of Thrones, Catelyn Six. During one of their louder quarrels, when Catelyn was eight, Lord Hoster had called Brynden the Black Goat of the Tully Flock. Laughing, Brynden had pointed out that the sigil of their house was a leaping trout, so he ought to be a black fish rather than a black goat. And from that day forward, he had taken it as his personal emblem. Despite his fame and how frequently nicknames in Westeros are born of deeds and combat, Brynden took the name of Blackfish not from something amazing he did in war, but from an argument with his brother when he was around 30, long after the Nine Penny Kings. When, with regards to Selmy, there's another big difference between the two of them. Barrison got his nickname at age 10. So advantage Selmy there. But anyway, the fact that Brynden seems to have derived some humor, he, he was kind of laughing about this argument while annoying his brother... Maybe that just supports the theory that he's just, that's just who he is. He doesn't like to be bossed around, and that's it. Simple as that. And when Brendan eventually returns to Riverrun with Catelyn in A Game of Thrones, 
one of the, the first thing Hoster says. Now, to be fair, Hoster's you know in his you know not in his right mind. He's very sick and uh, he's on painkillers, milk of the poppy and all. He still first thing he says is Bethany red wine. He starts complaining about that, and Catelyn relays that to Brendan, and Brendan just laughs. He just like of course, of course he brought that up. <laughs> now it may just be coincidence. It's probably just coincidence, but the actual first mention of obsidian or dragon glass, which is its nickname, of course, is Blackfish's, well, Blackfish. It's blue and red for House Tully, and his cloak is that color, but the Blackfish pins it to him, is to his shoulders. If it's not a coincidence, then join me in getting excited about him as a commander in the War for the Dawn. You know, something about that symbology of an obsidian fish. There's quite a lot that would have to happen before that, though. We're a ways from him interacting with the armies of the dead and the the White Walkers and all that. And he's a family first guy. That's his priority. Let's not forget that. So his changed emblem, let's talk about that for a second. The Tullys are an ancient house and have been ruling the Riverlands for 300 years and have had River Run for like a thousand. Everyone in the Seven Kingdoms would know that their sigil is the trout and the blue and red. They all are familiar with that. It's a famous pairing. So that sigil is mentioned multiple times throughout the text, especially in River Run. The guards wear fish crest helms, Hoster's bedposts look like leaping trout. It's everywhere, you know? Just like the other great houses, the Tullys, you know, well, they've had this, who knows which Lord Tully had that bed made. Over the years, there's been plenty of pride and some vanity mixed in. All these great houses, their sigil is a big deal. You know, Illyria likes to make fun of that, but it is what it is. Brendan himself separated from this a bit and made it his own, right? Maybe this annoyed Hoster, maybe he didn't care, but maybe because it was in reference to their argument, I'm going to I'm going to lean towards it annoying him a little bit. And it's not a good look when your vassal and your brother <laughs> has decided to distinguish himself from his own line. I, I don't know how big a deal that was, but he certainly got away with it. We can also guess that Brendan himself didn't care what other people thought of it, including his brother. He liked to have that level of individuality, and the Blackfish sigil kind of gave him that. And it fits him perfectly, right? He's devoted to family. It's still a trout, but he does it in his own way, as the colors indicate, or lack of color indicates in this case. It's another parallel to his namesake, by the way. Blood Raven had a dragon on his personal crest to show his allegiance to House Targaryen, but it was a pale white dragon in, in color with red eyes like him. Very personalized. So Brendan Tully doing the same thing as well, making the, the, the sigil his color. But despite both these guys being like maverick types, they were both heavily relied upon because they were so good at what they did or do. Unlike Bloodraven, though, Blackfish was actually very popular with his older brother's children. <laughs> Uncle Brendan. Despite his failed findings for Brendan, Hoster secured himself a wife in Manissa Went. There's no specific date on their marriage, but we can assume it was likely around 260 to 262, as Catelyn was Manissa's third pregnancy. So... When 264, 265, when, when Catelyn was born, that's also when Brynden lost his heir status that he probably didn't care about. The relationship between Catelyn and Brynden is an important one, but we'll get to that later because she's still just a little baby at this point. Hoster and Manissa would also have more kids to follow. Circa 266, 268, Catelyn was joined by Lysa, and around 270, Edmure arrived, and he became the heir. So the Tullys played... At happy family for several years. Everything was was good for a while. 
But then Menissa's death happened. Unfortunately, the then is hard to pinpoint. It's, it's like a 10-year range on it, but I'm guessing it's more towards the beginning of that. Somewhere between 268 and 78, but probably towards 68. And that's because Kat doesn't remember her very well. So you got to figure she was more on the young side. It would be interesting to know how well Manissa and Brendan got along, but given how well he got along with pretty much the whole family other than his brother, it was probably very painful for him, especially because he got along with the kids, and it would be painful for them, so he would share in their grief. It was certainly painful for Hoster. A lot of marriages are political in Westeros, but sometimes they work out, and there's love in these marriages despite them being political, and this is definitely one of those times. A Clash of Kings, Catelyn won. He talks of his regrets, of unfinished tasks, of people long dead and times long past. Sometimes he does not know what season it is, or who I am. Once he called me by mother's name. He misses her still, Sir Brendan answered. It's a fair guess that her death put a strain on Hoster and Brendan's relationship, because, you know, she didn't have, there were, that balance wasn't there anymore, that love wasn't in his life anymore. Kind of like how Tywin... Went from, you know, what he was to what he is now, just a more severe version of himself when Joanna died. I think it's probably fairly similar. It's a great uh, counterexample, or similar example, rather. And despite this brotherly arguing, Hoster's three children had a pretty happy childhood, right? This is the only conflict that we know of. Everybody else seemed to get along really well. The Blackfish played uncle. You know, he was uh, probably pretty happy to do this. And Catelyn remembers very fondly these childhood memories relating to him. The Game of Thrones, Catelyn Six. Nonetheless, during all those years of Catelyn's girlhood, it had been Brynden the Blackfish to whom Lord Hoster's children had run with their tears and their tales. When father was too busy and mother too ill, Catelyn, Lysa, Edmure, and yes, even Peter Baelish, their father's ward, he had listened to them all patiently, as he listened now, laughing at their triumphs and sympathizing with their childish misfortunes. Cat's memories show an interesting side to Brendan's character, too. Up to this point, you would be forgiven for thinking Brendan a quiet, reserved man, more in love with his sword than anyone else, and quite emotionally distant. But don't forget how blunt he is with his words. He doesn't mince, he says what's on his mind. And as we know, George R. R. Martin, too, he likes to be more complicated than that. He doesn't like to make things too simple when there's depth to be explored within a character. And Brendan's too important to be relegated to two-dimensional character status. He very obviously cared for the children, especially Catelyn. And maybe you could say that while Hoster had the weight of the realm and running the family, Brendan was kind of the cool uncle who was able to take joy in the little things, such as being with his family, just hanging out with them day to day and enjoying life that way. He seemed to care for them more than his simple duty as an uncle. Again, family is the first word for House Tully. And it's kind of cool, though, to think about how, despite being a renowned warrior and uh, just a badass all around, he could hang out with his family, laugh and play games, and listen. He was said to be a very good listener by Catelyn. At some point in their childhoods, these three young Tullys, Lysa, Catelyn, and Edmure, the War of Nine Tenny Kings became important again, even though it had happened in, in the past. Because during the fighting, Hoster befriended Lord Baelish, the father of Peter. And of course, because of that friendship, Hoster agreed to foster, hey, nice rhyme there, a young son. And that's him, Peter. So he lived there, and he got along with Blackfish too. Blackfish apparently was like a second uncle-ish type thing. 
So he had he did have warmth for outside his family, even though he generally focused on just them. So as those three grew, so did Peter along with them, and he became enamored with the girls, especially Catelyn, as we well know. And it was reached the point that it was he got so serious about it and so in his head about it that when it was announced that she was going to be betrothed to Brandon, or that she was betrothed to Brandon, it was official. Littlefinger tried to kiss her <laughs> that same night, and of course she rejected him. So he went and got drunk and passed out. But Blackfish is the one who carried him to bed, maybe saving him from some embarrassment, showing that tender side again. Although maybe it would have been better if he didn't, because this is the night that Lysa came to his room after he was drunk, but before he passed out, slept with him. She got pregnant, and ooh, that didn't go well. Since we know that Blackfish was the one they ran to, kind of the cool uncle they could talk to, imagine Lysa going to talk to him about this, running to him and be like, hey, I'm pregnant, blah, blah, blah. So he probably knew about Hoster giving her tansy to abort it, right? The abort the baby. So that couldn't have helped his relationship with Hoster. Remember that this incident nearly killed her. And he, already having disputes with his brother and loving his nieces and nephew, how could this have not bothered him a lot? Soon enough, the Tournament of Hall came around. It was held by a relative of Lady Manissa, because she's from House Went. That's who ruled Hall until, well, until early in the series. About the time of Feast for Crows, the Wents are pretty much done. So it seems likely the Tullys were there because that's, you know, that's their family. That's their family by marriage and all the, you know, Catelyn's half went. So as a side note, we don't really hear of Blackfish taking interest in tourneys. Again, the opposite of Selmy. You know, Selmy was a famous tourney knight. Blackfish, we don't hear about him competing in a single tournament. To go deeper, given that Catelyn was about to be married, Blackfish was also surely around when Brandon Stark ran off to the Red Keep and his famous furious rage demanding that Rhaegar come out to die because he believed that Lyanna was kidnapped. What did Brendan think of that? Of Brandon marrying Cat in general? Of Lyanna and Rhaegar? What did he think of that? I wonder if he offered to help track them down or something. Or I wonder if he didn't do anything and maybe felt guilty later, as others surely did, that he hadn't tried to intervene. Or not. I mean, it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his duty. But sometimes... Honorable men and women, they say I could have, they think I could have done more. They take the responsibility on themselves. And this kind of seems like the kind of guy Brendan is. Whatever he thought or felt about it, though, it marked the end of what was possibly the best time of his life. Maybe not counting his childhood, perhaps. It was the end of spending day in and day out with family and relative peace. And war <laughs> was what came instead. Robert's Rebellion. As the mention of Brandon, Lyanna, and Rhaegar might have hinted to you, the War of the Usurper, right around the corner. Had House Tully chosen a different side, if they had kept with their traditional Targaryen loyalties, well, War of the Usurper is probably what it would be called today instead of Robert's Rebellion, because again, the victors get to decide these things. This is a major decision for Hoster, though. It would have had to be difficult. The Tullys, again, Long history of siding with the Targaryens, but look at the recent history. Look at Aerys and look at Celia Tully's rejection. Things weren't so good as they had been. And the Riverlands, being the Riverlands, is 
always in a tough spot when it comes to war because they're in the middle, right? They're, they have the most shared borders with other regions and they don't have a lot of natural defenses outside of the rivers. There's not a lot of deep forests or big mountains or anything like that. I kind of imagine, this is a headcanon moment here, that Brendan himself was part of these councils and he would focus and think about a lot the various strengths and weaknesses of their neighbors. You know, kind of calculating it all, decide, well, who do we have the best chance against? Well, meanwhile, Hoster focuses on the politics, the appearances, the alliances, and the marriages. It seemed like they were a good team when they worked together because they had complementary skills. But again, these difficulties between them on the personal level may have, well, it probably didn't help in spots like this. Remember Jaehaerys Targaryen spurning Celia Tully to marry his own sister in secret? Hoster, again, was born just after that. Brendan, five years later. The two of these guys grew up hearing about that. So again, it comes up and it's huge. Let's think of it this way. Take the pride that's so common with these noble families. Had Jaehaerys married Celia, the Tullys of then would be living under a Tully queen now. Or under her descendants. Half-Tully princes and princesses running around. They got Ares and Rhaella instead. Can you imagine the bitterness is like, this is what we get? We could have, our house could have been the royal family. And we get this instead. <laughs> you could easily see them just shaking their heads like, what? Every time Ares does something crazy, they'd just be like, this wouldn't have happened if that was a Tolly queen, right? What an embarrassment. Imagine Dante from Clerk saying, I shouldn't even be here today. It's the same kind of, yeah. They, they wouldn't be having to choose sides in this war for one thing. They would easily, they would know who to side with. Their family, they would be an easy choice. So even though Hoster put family first, probably, as much as we can tell, it might have been satisfying to turn against a king and a queen who wouldn't even exist had his family not been jilted. And it's not like the Targaryens were going to offer the satisfaction of any marriages this time either. While the Starks and the Aarons, well, that is exactly what they were offering. Stark and John Aaron were going to marry... Tully's. What? The Targaryens offered what? The chance to do your duty <laughs> to a king that's terrible, who burns people alive, who's broken the feudal contract many times. What's more satisfying than that, though, is picking the winner. They, well, you know, maybe the Tully's, if they had been on the other side, it would have pushed the war that way. But had the Tully's been on the losing side, on Robert's side, they would have been amongst the most punished, I think, other than the Baratheons. And as wars, especially civil wars, tend to tear apart the realm, it has a trickle-down effect and tears things down on a smaller scale. Regions, families are torn apart, even when they fight for the same side. The Riverlands Divided It's not like Hoster had a choice that wasn't war. And eventually he did choose rebellion, as we know. Even though the Brandon-Catlin marriage was off, because Brandon was dead, he presumably still felt the same way about who his friends were and where his long-term interests lie. So Ned had agreed to take his brother's place, but the marriage didn't actually come right away, nor did the marriage to Lysa, nor even the idea. Because at the time, well, John Aaron had a, a living heir. <laughs> First, there was a lot of fighting in the Riverlands, subjugating those who chose Targaryen over Tully. Then came the key battle of Stony Sept, that which convinced Ares that this rebellion was a real threat. And Stony Sept is in the Riverlands again. Remember earlier I mentioned how everything happens in the Riverlands? Well, the final battle also happened in the Riverlands. The Battle of the Trident, right? Curiously, though, we don't really know what Brendan did during any of this. It's obvious that he participated in some form or fashion. We just don't know exactly how or why. 
There's no mention of what Hoster commanded him to do, what battles he fought in, not even if he was at the Trident later on, which is pretty curious in and of itself. And we get a pretty thorough list throughout the series of who was there, but no one mentions the Blackfish. So we have a, we have a few options. We know that Hoster himself fought in the Battle of the Bells. And we have this example of one of the only mentions of the event. Arya overhears this whilst in the company of the Brotherhood Without Manners between Notch and Gendry. A Storm of Swords, Arya 8. Who did it then? asked Gendry. Hoster Tully. Notch was a stooped, thin, gray-haired man born in these parts. This was Lord Goodbrook's village. When Riverrun declared for Robert, Goodbrook stayed loyal to the king, so Lord Tully came down on him with fire and sword. After the trident, Goodbrook's son made his peace with Robert and Lord Hoster, but that didn't help the dead none. So Notch seems pretty certain that it was Hoster himself, but that doesn't exclude Brynden's involvement. We really don't have enough info at this point. It seems Hoster was fairly pragmatic and willing to do what needed to be done. We already know he wanted the village burnt, so really it's a question of whether he'd want to do it himself. Would Brynden disobey an order like this? Eh, maybe. I mean, we've seen him disobey other things, especially marriage, and, you know, this is burning villagers. That's, that's a bit harsher. Then again... This is war, and Brynden understands that well, and he may have understood why this horrible command had to be issued. And he himself, in A Dance of Dragons, ejected useless mouths from Riverrun while scouring the land around it of food, probably dooming them all, especially with winter coming on top of it. So he did similar here, I guess. Edmure is the teller who seems to care about the commoners in this way, not Brynden. But his own personal loyalties may have come up as well. Recall that Brynden squired for Lord Derry, and the Derrys are staunch Targaryen loyalists. So that may have really torn him apart on the inside a bit if he had to fight against any of them. It may be also why he didn't want those entangling marriages early. It may relate to that. And let's not sleep on old Norbert Vance, who squired with Brynden. We don't know what side the Vances were on during the rebellion, but maybe they were on the Targaryen side, and that made it even harder for Brynden. It's also important that House Lannister hadn't taken a side yet, and they remained in the west, really near Riverrun, with that army just poised to strike, so Hoster had to worry about that. Obviously, Tywin had been handed the king so for Aerys, so he could easily see how they might take the Targaryen side. So maybe Brendan was held back in order to stay and guard against an attack from the west. If Tywin's going to come for you, you want the blackfish there dealing with him. You want your best man in position for that. And he seems to be an expert in defense as much as he is on offense. So it would fit that well as, as much too. Handling Tywin, certainly tougher than handling those good brick villages, right? <laughs> but whatever the arrangement, Hoster felt he could rely on blackfish despite their disagreements. But the outlook was different for Brendan himself. House Tully divided. After the Battle of the Bells, it was time to make things official. John Aaron's heir had died during that battle, killed by John Connington himself. So the North Riverlands Vale Baratheon Alliance sealed this deal with a double marriage. The original marriage to Catelyn and Ned, you know, instead of Brandon and Catelyn, and of course Lysa and John Aaron. Now, the Lysa John Aaron part was kind of rushed and announced kind of late in the game. So it's a very different situation personally for Lysa as it was for Catelyn. And Lysa has to marry someone, you know, 40 years older than her, whereas Catelyn got to marry Ned Stark, who's about her age. 
And this is also the time when Robert announced his claim to the throne. Presumably after discussing it with these other great lords who were present, they all kind of agreed that his claim was the best, that his leadership was vital, and Blackfish was probably there for all that. He was probably part of these chats. You wouldn't leave the famous Blackfish out of these important conversations, I wouldn't think. A big swing for the realm and all these families, right? This is a huge turning point. And Brendan's life took a big swing on that day, too. Right after the ceremony, he informed Hoster that he would be leaving his beloved home to accompany Lysa at the Eyrie. Hoster immediately disowned Brendan and didn't say his name again till A Game of Thrones when he's on his deathbed. I don't think there's a clear piece of evidence that Hoster loved his brother and relied on him. Again, they were close as boys. He took this personally, it seems like. From Hoster's point of view, not a point of view chapter, but from his perspective, his famous brother, here he is leaving right when the war is getting serious. And he's so vital. He's such a valuable asset. Right after House Tully has sealed its future with this final commitment via double marriage. I mean, has there ever been a double marriage of two daughters to two different great houses in one ceremony? I, I didn't actually research that particular thing, but I don't think so. I really don't think so. Either way, it's quite a time to announce that you're leaving, right? <laughs> so, remember, aside from when abroad for the war, Riverwood had always been home for Brendan, and he seemingly adored the castle and his family. But, I mean, from his perspective, these marriages and alliances meant the family was breaking apart anyway. For now, they'd remain at Riverrun, but after the war, Catelyn would be heading north, and Lysa would go east. Only Hoster and Edmure would remain, and they had each other. Plus, it certainly seems Brynden was more fond of the girls. The Tansy incident could weigh here heavily, too. If he knew about it, which he probably did, as we said earlier, it's really hard to imagine Blackfish, a guy who doesn't really play politics, being okay with his brother tricking his niece into having an abortion because of politics. Right? He's just, there's no way he would be cool with that. Whether tensions had been particularly high with Hoster around this time, well, we don't know. You know, they were always arguing, but it seems like this would have made it worse. All the things happening. But any or all these guesses could be close to the mark. We don't have to assume it's just one thing. There's a lot of things that could be involved here. So again, we consider the type of man he was. And at heart, he's a soldier, a protector. Did he look at his two still young nieces in the time of war and decide he would go with the obviously weaker one in the aim of protecting her? Was it like his protective instinct kicking in? All we know of Lysa and a Brendan kind of fits, doesn't it? Also, he may have been impressed with John Aaron. John Aaron's the one who you know, called the banners and you know, rejected the call for the heads of his wards. That is how someone should behave, I would think, from Blackfish's point of view. He'd say, hey, that's a man standing up for people that he treats as family that aren't actually family. Regardless of his reasoning, John Aaron was probably pretty happy to get the great Blackfish on his immediate side. I mean, they were already on the same side, but, you know, in his employ. And we're told Blackfish gained more renown during the war, but again, no specifics. <laughs> the Battle of the Trident itself is the next major battle, and it's also pretty detail-light, despite being so famous. So there's a chance we learn more later. I hope so. But I definitely figure that Blackfish was leading outriders and fighting in skirmishes ahead of the main battle, and then fighting in that too, kind of like what he does in the War of Five Kings. Either way, the war took a while longer to officially end, but it was certainly over. One wonders if he returned to the Riverlands at all before taking on his new duties as a peacetime resident of the Vale, but it seems unlikely because of, again, the difficulties with his brother. The Knight of the Gate
Lysa lost her pregnancy during the war, and it broke her heart because Kat thinks that it's because partly because she didn't lose hers. Lysa couldn't bear to hold Rob. She started crying the first time she was handed him and never held him again. So if Brendan's protective nature factored in before, it may have kicked in into an even higher gear now. However, he may not have known a lot of this because he was away from the war. It's not exactly kind of his kind of battle. He's a soldier, not a, uh, you know, the kind of guy that maybe is the best at uh, handling emotional issues. Although we are told he's a good listener, which just by itself counts for a lot. But it's a soldier's job he was given. At some point, probably not that long ago, given a comment by Ned who said that I heard he'd been made Knight of the Gate, which you wouldn't think that would have happened so long ago. John Aaron bestows him this title, which is a very high-regarded title. It's The Bloody Gate is the gate that it refers to, and this guards the entrance to the Vale itself. How nice that the Vale, this vast region, has this nice tight entrance that it's really hard to, to go elsewhere unless you're coming in by ship. So you can see why its place was such high esteem, and Lysa might have felt more comfortable with him being there, especially, you know, knowing how protective he was at a younger age. And if you've watched the TV show or read Catelyn's description, you can conjure up a pretty good image of the Bloody Gate and why it's just so difficult and uh, so uh, imposing to an invading army. The Game of Thrones, Catelyn Six. She was about to say as much when she saw the battlements ahead, long parapets built into the very stone of the mountains on either side of them where the pass shrank to a narrow defile scarce wide enough for four men to ride abreast, twin watchtowers clung to the rocky slopes, joined by a covered bridge of weathered gray stone that arched above the road. Silent faces watched from arrow slits in tower, battlements, and bridge. When they had climbed almost to the top, a knight rode out to meet them. His horse and his armor were gray, but his cloak was the rippling blue and red of River Run, and a shiny black fish, wrought in gold and obsidian, pinned its folds against his shoulder. Who would pass the bloody gate, he called. As you can imagine, and as we know from history, well, <laughs> probably no one even tried to attack the bloody gate while Brendan was there. As far as we know, there's no evidence that that happened, and it would be crazy to do that, so it's, it's a safe guess that it didn't happen. But we do know that Brendan held the position until Catelyn's arrival with Tyrion around 298, and he was... You know, somewhere around the Vale, all that time, either as the Knight of the Gate or, you know, with John Aaron or somewhere else with Lysa for about 16 years. And most of that was peaceful. But he still remained estranged from his family that whole time, apart from Lysa. But she was getting worse every year. You know, her psyche was eroding. Her paranoia was getting worse. And while he himself is, you know, very steadfast in his duties... He probably kept his skills maintained, but we don't really know what happened during the rest of Westeros either during the 16 years. So, you know, it's, it's just a big kind of empty space there. But it was probably mostly peaceful. Except for about six years after he arrived, war broke out again, thanks to Balon Greyjoy's First Rebellion. But the Vale was really far from the Iron Islands. I'm not sure that they got involved much. Brendan may have wanted to be involved, but... We don't know that he was, and he was around 50, so maybe he didn't actually want to be that involved. And also of note, during this long stint, where he was uh, about nine years into his time at the Erie at this point, where the, the Greyjoy Rebellion, Lysa gave birth to a young Robert Aaron. Uh, so he's, you know, the new heir to the Vale, and just four years after that, that's when Hoster started getting really, really ill, which is where the book 
begins. Book one starts with this as the status quo. Now, unlike the TV show, Brendan doesn't show up until like season three. Blackfish is involved really early on in the books and right away in terms of Rob's campaign. And this starts with a decision to switch nieces. <laughs> While the Tullys are all over are making mistakes or being crazy or becoming undead, <laughs> Blackfish stands tall and persistent and consistent. Thanks to the history of Westeros Blood Riders, Kohal Koei, master of the bow called Sunpiercer, slayer of all the pumpkin spice vendors in Westeros, and Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragon bone hilt. And our sellsword captains, Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. Dagron, marshal of the axe, captain of the Red Tide. Resistance is futile. Chiron Callsbane, captain of the Stone Shields, the torrent breaks upon the stone. Hema Helminth, captain of the Whispering Children, dead men tell no secrets. Lady Lazara Dajo, the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep Arboreal Point, captain of the all-female Wailing Widows, women and children first. Cody the Crimson, Bastard of Bracken, captain of the Red Waste Exiles and recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron the Hammer of Hornwood, captain of the English Lions, with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. Also, a reminder to visit historyofwesteros.com from time to time, especially if you plan on shopping at Amazon. We've got a lot of links to a lot of cool products there that are Game of Thrones related, and anything you buy through those links tracks back to us and we get a little bit of credit, so you'd be supporting the show by shopping there. A song of ice and fire and blackfish. In a Game of Thrones, Catelyn makes her infamous decision to take Tyrion at the end of the Kneeling Man and then secretly take him to the Eyrie so as to avoid trouble on the way back to Winterfell and to seek support from Lysa and the Vale in the possible upcoming confrontations with the Lannisters. Catelyn and company did still find trouble on the road, running into the mountain clans and eventually being saved by a sortie led by Sir Donald Wainwood and taken to the Bloody Gate. Sir Donald, actually, interestingly enough, is the one who replaces Blackfish when he departs as Knight of the Gate. So when uncle and niece meet again, after so many years... Catelyn gives us our first description proper of Sir Brendan, and you can tell how happy she is to see him. The Game of Thrones, Catelyn Six. Take off your helm. I would look on your face again. The years have not improved it, I fear, Brendan Tully said. But when he lifted off the helm, Catelyn saw that he lied. His features were lined and weathered, and time had stolen the auburn from his hair and left him only gray. But the smile was the same and the bushy eyebrows fat as caterpillars, and the laughter in his deep blue eyes. And Brendan gives something away when we first meet him. When Catelyn tells him all she knows about the Lannisters and Jon Arryn's death and everything else, his immediate response reads, The Game of Thrones, Catelyn Six. Your father must be told, he said at last. If the Lannisters should march, Winterfell is remote and the Vale walled up behind its mountains, but River Run lights right in their path. Brendan's first thought is a family and his ancestral home. Even with the animosity between them, Brendan puts his brother first. We also don't really have to spend too long to learn that the Blackfish is quite vexed with his niece and how she's descending into paranoia and not protecting her family. You know, that's probably the biggest thing for him. The Game of Thrones, Catelyn Seven. At the doors to Lysa's apartments, they met her uncle storming out. Going to join the Fool's Festival? Sir Brendan snapped. I'd tell you to slap some sense into your sister if I thought it would do any good, but you'd only bruise your hand. He's just disgusted with Lysa's insistence on hiding, and especially with not helping, and he immediately agrees to go with Catelyn and help her son, Rob, 
who again is half Tully, and he had just declared war on the Iron Throne. So clearly he's going to need some help. And there's likely a multitude of factors that led Blackfish to make this decision, like annoyance with Lysa, maybe boredom, you know, or just the fact that he knew Rob would need help and he saw it as his duty. A lot, Probably all these things matter. But, you know, he also got to return to the Riverlands, which probably uh, was a, a plus. A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 7. I asked your sister for leave to take a thousand seasoned men and ride for Riverrun with all haste. Do you know what she told me? The Vale cannot spare a thousand swords, nor even one, uncle, she said. You are the knight of the gate. Your place is here. Well, I told her she could bloody well find herself a new knight of the gate. Blackfish or no, I am still a Tully. I shall leave for Riverrun by Evenfall. That last line is perfect, right? It's their house words looming large. It's, uh, he declares that he's done with being a knight of the gate, a great honor that he's held a long time, deciding that his duty is to fight for the more imperiled side of his family. You know, Lysa seems pretty safe. I seriously doubt the highly prestigious position of knight of the gate has seen a lot of voluntary defections like this, but comparing him to the Kingsguard and Night's Watch, though, that this is kind of a cushy job, considering how ridiculous it would be to attack the bloody gate. Lots of reasons to think his niece Lysa and great-nephew Robert Aaron were safe, right? Littlefinger aside. But Rob was clearly in great danger, and Catelyn too. So it was time to go. The young wolf's right-hand fish. Lysa's paranoia and Hoster's disownment make it entirely possible that Brynden hadn't seen his birthplace during his tenure in the Vale. But to return, he would have to fight his way there. The route they took was not exactly direct, as you can see here on the screen, but it was safer. It didn't take long for Brendan to make his mark in yet another war. His reputation being what it was, almost immediately, Rob made the very smart decision to make the Blackfish the leader of his outriders, his eyes and ears. George does a fantastic job of showing the finer points of warfare through Brendan. We often think of a war hero, here we are again with this comparison again, like a Barristan, the bold type, cutting his way through an entire town to save his king, or through the Golden Company. And while Brendan is certainly capable of such fighting skill, it's his forethought and tactics that really help Rob's campaign. Firstly, he clashes with Adam Marbrand's outriders, managing to repel them, which allows Rob's forces to move down into the Riverlands, and Adam Marbrand is highly regarded. Even more importantly, Brendan is able to deal with the Lannister scouts and halting their communications by bringing down all the ravens, referring back to the quote at the beginning of this episode. By doing this, he's able to hide the fact that Rob intends to split his forces, Without this simple help, Rob would have likely been finished before he started. One of Brendan's biggest marks on the War of the Five Kings is engineering the battle in the Whispering Wood. Remember the timing. Rob had just crossed into the Riverlands, but Jamie Lannister had already been making his mark, defeating Lords Piper and Vance in the Western Hills before moving on to Riverrun itself, winning a battle beneath its walls and then putting it under siege. So Jamie obviously scored first in the war, He's taken the heir of the region. Remember, Hoster is gravely ill by this point, so Ed Muir is pretty much running things. And he put a major castle in his control. It wasn't a great look for Rob's campaign, and it made Jamie look brilliant. But not for long. <laughs> it's all downhill for Jamie from there. And Blackfish, who had long looked brilliant, reminded the realm that he was still a factor despite his age. Thanks in large part to Brendan, Jamie became a prisoner at Riverrun, only to come back later with an army. Thanks to Blackfish, <laughs> it all comes in circles. While Jamie's mistakes were more egregious, more costly, Tywin himself also underestimated who he was up against. He couched his plans in the typical overconfidence and in, in experience of youth, thinking too much of his own son's tendencies, perhaps. 
he should have been thinking of Blackfish. Tywin even pointed out how terrible the optics of sending Selmy away were, especially if he showed up alongside Renly or Robb Stark, but he didn't give the same weight to Blackfish. Selmy is certainly more traditionally popular, and in a war of legitimacy, popularity is powerful, but still, Blackfish on your side means a lot. Tywin and Jamie prepared for the King in the North, and they should have prepared for the Blackfish, but in their defense, he had been Knight of the Gate for so long, how were they to even know he had left the Vale? They didn't realize he was with Rob until it was too late. They didn't see him coming. That's Blackfish in a nutshell, isn't it? Being less popular than Selmy has its advantages after all. But we got to give Rob his due as well. You know, he split his infantry and cavalry to prevent Tywin and Jamie linking up, something that could have made the war unwinnable for the North. And when our subject, possibly out of action for a very long time, proved he was amazing still, Rob was quick to maximize his talents and make good use of him. So that ruse was enough to fool Tywin at the Battle of the Green Fork and allow the more impressive plan to be enacted. But instead of just riding up and attacking Jamie's camp, the Northmen used Jamie's arrogance against him. Brendan himself made the call on Jamie's personality, getting a read on how to make use of his impatience and being confident in it. Rob agreed. A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 10. The Kingslayer is restless and quick to anger, her uncle Brynden had told Rob, and he had wagered their lives in their best hope of victory on the truth of what he said. Brynden then showed his worth as he went ahead of Rob's main force, scouting all Lannisters and stopping the enemy from doing the same. If this part of the plan had failed, then the rest would have come crashing down with it. It was Blackfish's expertise that made it work. It was a difficult plan to pull off, and without the right people, they wouldn't have been able to do it. And the right people, in this case, is our man. The Game of Thrones, Catelyn 10. Rob had given Blackfish 300 picked men and sent them ahead to screen his march. Jamie does not know, Sir Brenton said when he rode back. I'll stake my life on that. No bird has reached him. My archers have seen to that. We've seen a few of his outriders, but those that saw us did not live to tell of it. He ought to have sent out more. He does not know. Rob then sent out a small unit of men wearing Tully colors. Jamie, believing this to be a harrying force, rushed out headfirst right into the Whispering Wood. And who led the party that Jamie followed? Sir Brendan Tully. And we all know what happened next. The Northmen rushed from the trees, destroyed the Lannister force, and captured Jamie. It was a great victory, and all in King Rob's army knew the Blackfish was the chief architect of it all. Return to Riverrun. Brynden didn't have to wait long for glory to come again. With the Battle of the Camps, Rob moved to free Riverrun from its siege. As we all know, when Riverrun is in a pinch, the sluice gate is open, turning the castle into an island. This left three Lannister camps, north, west, and east, because they cannot sit together. Thanks to Brynden's earlier movements, the camps were all completely unaware of Rob's coming. Brynden was to strike first. He descended on the north camp out of nowhere, striking a huge victory and drawing the west camp over to help, only for Rob to then come in to finish the plan. The result was an overwhelming victory for the north, and no short thanks to Brynden. Back at Tywin's war camp, Tyrion hears a much better account of the battle than ours. Game of Thrones, Tyrion 9. The Blackfish led the van, cutting down our sentries and clearing away the palisade for the main assault. By the time our men knew what was happening, riders were pouring over the ditch banks and galloping through the camp with swords and torches in hand. I was sleeping in the west camp between the rivers. When we heard the fighting and saw the tents being fired, Lord Brax led us to the rafts and we tried to pull across. But the current pushed us downstream and the Tully started flinging rocks at us with the catapults at their walls. 
I saw one raft smashed to kindling and three others overturned. Men swept into the river and drowned. And those who did make it back across found the Starks waiting for them on the riverbanks. And just like that, the Blackfish is home again. And waiting for him was a, a quick break from war and his unfortunately dying brother. Catelyn goes to see Hoster in the midst of River and celebrations, and they talk about Rob and the war. And then Brendan comes up in conversation, and despite the fact that he was so crucial in saving everyone from siege, this old grievance returns immediately. A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 11. Even so, spit on the girl. The red wines spit on me. His lord, his brother, that blackfish. I had other offers. Lord Bracken's girl, Walder Frey, any of the three. He said, has he wed anyone? Anyone? So maybe this is a decent window in understanding why Brendan got so annoyed with his brother. It had been decades, and it was still the first thing out of Hoster's mouth. I mean, jeez, right? It might get to, to someone. I could see it getting to you. Get to me. Brendan, on the other hand, just, again, he laughed it off. The Game of Thrones, Catelyn 11. Brendan Blackfish chuckled. I am too old a soldier to believe that. Hoster will be chiding me about the red wine girl even as we light his funeral pyre. Damn his bones. At one point, Catelyn walks into her father's solar to find Brendan sitting by the bed in his armor, a travel-stained cloak and dusty boots, which I think shows us again how much Brendan wanted to be by his brother's side in these final days. His loyalty trumped their disagreements. It's rare of George to give us any strong family moments like this, but this reconciliation of Brendan and Hoster, super subtle, but really excellent, really touching. But nonetheless, there's still a war to be fought, and that had to take precedence. Brendan soon on the move again. Rob made the plan to go further west, leaving Edmure behind to protect Riverrun and hold off Tywin. Now, the details we have for this part of the war are a bit thinner, as we have no point of view for it. Catelyn was sent south to treat with Renly, while Theon was sent home to the Iron Islands, but we do catch up and learn what Rob and his great-uncle got up to after the fact. Upon learning that a new Lannister host was being raised at Oxcross, Rob luckily had Greywind find a secret track through the western hills, which allowed them to use Brynden in much the same way as he did before, as a master outrider and scout killer, which he did exactly that, and soon enough, they were able to sneak up on this new host, which was completely unsuspecting, and destroy it before it could become useful to Tywin. This victory was perhaps even more impressive than the previous because the host was gone and Stafford Lannister was killed and the Westerlands were now just wide open for Rob and Brendan to do their thing. This continued for a while with much raiding and killing until eventually Rob's forces had to return to Riverrun. While they were gone, Edmure had successfully defended Riverrun from Lannister forces, which was not what they wanted. <laughs> they wanted him to get past. They, Edmure wasn't supposed to do that. He'd pushed them back too far. This is where one of the biggest contentions of Rob War strategy arises, and maybe some of the blame is on Blackfish. We're not sure. As we shortly find out after, Edmure managed to delay Tywin just long enough to hear that Stannis was about to attack King's Landing. And so Tywin was able to turn around, link up with the Tyrells, and stop Stannis rescuing King's Landing. And that was bad for the North and the Riverlands. That was their best chance to win the war. And unknowingly, Edmure messed it up. So this is possibly because of bad communication. But we bring this up because Brendan is on Rob's side in this. He berates Edmure. It's a point well recognized by more than a few essays and blogs that have been written in our community that Edmure did what pretty much anyone would do. He protected Riverrun and then, believing he could gain his side advantage, went further. He was not 
told to do what he did, but it didn't seem like a stretch to, to pull that off. Either way, communication mistake, but Edmure suffers the backlash. A Storm of Swords, Catlin 2. The Blackfish cleared his throat and said, I think we've all heard sufficient of your boasting, nephew. Edmure was taken aback. Boasting? What do you mean? I mean, said the Blackfish, that you always grace your thanks for his forbearance. He played out that mummer's farce in the Great Hall so as to not shame you before your own people. Had it been me, I would have flayed you for your stupidity rather than praising this folly of the Fords. So perhaps this is Brendan and Rob bearing some pride and not and wanting to blame Edmure instead of blaming themselves for not giving better orders. Or perhaps they did give better orders and, and, and Edmure took it upon himself. We, don't, we weren't there for the conversation uh, of what was said to Edmure. But as we know, this is just the start of Rob's troubles. You know, it went so well for a while and then it started to go downhill. Not long after this, he's forced to sentence Lord Ricard Karstark to death, and Blackfish comes into this as someone who gets asked for advice. But his advice isn't great. <laughs> Soon, Hoster finally dies. It might not have affected Rob all that much, but it definitely rocked the worlds of Catelyn and Brendan. One lost a father, the other lost the older brother he'd been arguing with for half his life, but whom he still loved despite all that. And one of the cooler Blackfish moments in both the show and the book is that Tully funeral for Hoster. When Edmure misses the funeral boat with a flaming arrow several times, he thrusts the bow to Sir Brendan, who nails the shot with one try. And, of course, it's pointed out that Hoster missed his first shot, too, but his second shot got there. The Red Wedding As valuable as Blackfish was with planning battles and strategy, he wasn't much help with politics, something Rob sorely needed. The incident with Ricard Karstark and then the Jane Westerling situation showed the need for skilled political thinking because these were hard to handle and they weren't battlefield situations, which was the only thing, an important thing, but the only thing that, that Rob and his team seemed to be great at. Rob lamented, saying, I should have thought of this, referring to the idea of trading Jamie for Sansa then marrying Sansa to Loras Tyrell, bringing the Reach into the war on their side. Or, you know, Robert Aaron might have worked as, just as well. But either way... That that idea wasn't proposed, apparently. Rob acts like that idea was never brought up, which means neither Catelyn nor Blackfish nor any of the other lords had this idea. And it's kind of an obvious idea. Blackfish or Rob or Ned, all these guys are soldiers first, not politicians. It really shows. They really needed someone like Hoster Tully himself, whose illness kind of took him out of the picture until he died he's the kind of guy that would have seen some of these angles. He was a political guy. And this might have been what Walder Frey and Tywin Lannister realized, that, hey, Hoster's out of the way. You got this young kid. You got this, you know, his uncle, who's just this battle-tested guy that has no political experience, basically. He might have realized this is where we can win this war. Not on the battlefield, but, you know, in the, in the deal-making room, whatever you want to call it. Just like you would want Brendan on your side, if you might suspect an ambush, he'd be the perfect guy to help sniff that out. But this kind of trap, the Red Wedding, I don't know if he would have been the right man for that. But we don't know because he wasn't there. Edmure married Rosalind with Rob along to offer his apologies, which was a condition of the Alliance trap. <laughs> he took his mother and uncle, not his great uncle. Brendan was left behind to protect River Run. And he had a new title to accompany it, Warden of the Southern Marches. As the party leaves, Catelyn 
sums up her confidence in the idea of Blackfish being the one left behind to guard them. A Storm of Swords, Catlin 5. Queen Jane would be safest behind the high, strong walls of River Run with the Blackfish to protect her. Robert even created him a new title, Warden of the Southern Marches. Sir Brendan would hold the trident, if any man could. All the same, Catelyn would miss her uncle's craggy face, and Rob would miss his counsel. Sir Brendan had played a part in every victory her son had won. Galbert Glover had taken command of the scouts and outriders in his place. A good man, loyal and steady, but without the Blackfish's brilliance. We all know what actually happened at the Red Wedding. Don't need to rehash that. Don't need to guess how it affected Brendan much either. His nephew is captured, likely to die from where he's sitting, and his great-nephew and king slaughtered. Catelyn, his niece, who we'd held hands with at his brother's funeral, had had her throat cut and thrown naked in the river. Only Lysa was left in the world, and she was to die not long after. Brendan had fought his way back to his family, helped rescue them from siege, only to see them lose and die anyway outside of battle, while the niece he left behind was also killed, also not in battle. That left him basically alone again, without much family to speak of. There's still duty and honor, though. Warden of the Southern Marches. Brendan not being a meek nor mild man, Riverrun remained defiant even when the nasty old phrase came a-knockin'. Here's where opinions differ greatly on Blackfish. When Riverrun was originally threatened, Edmure brought in all the small folk to take refuge within the castle walls. Brendan did the opposite. Citing that more mouths need more food, and knowing the phrase are coming to siege, the Blackfish kicks them all out, leaving them to their own defense. A Feast for Crows, Jamie 5. Can we starve the castle out? Sir Davin shook his head. The Blackfish expelled all the useless mouths from Riverrun and picked this country clean. He has enough stores to keep man and horse alive for two full years. That's pretty bad. But he's also not wrong. He knows there's a siege coming. He knows there isn't going to be help for a while. All the river lords minus Tidos Blackwood are bending the knee. Without the small folk, he can perhaps hold off the phrase for two years. If he keeps them, not so long at all. So it's a pretty difficult choice. Brendan knows he's going to be vilified for it, but he does it anyway. And he also scoured the surrounding land, as we said earlier, so the Fries couldn't use the surrounding land for their own food, but neither could those small folk. So he was tasked with holding River Run, and he was going to hold it, despite having to do awful things to reach that goal. There's something we haven't mentioned yet, which is that Brendan had another task, and when Rob and the others went north, he was left, or he left his young wife behind, the Queen Girl Jane, the one that Catelyn feels confident leaving behind because it's Brendan guarding her. And he intended to do that. He did his duty as best as he could. And when the phrase finally did arrive and threatened to hang Edmure, he didn't budge. After a short treatment, the siege leader, Ryman Frey, begins to bring Edmure before the gallows, which we know was just a bluff, and Blackfish called it. <laughs> again and again and again, he calls it. His bluff is repeated over and over, but of course it just gets easier to call over and over, probably. Does he know Ryman is full of it? Or is he just, well, this is my job. It doesn't matter if you hang Edmure. I got orders from the king, and that takes precedence. Or maybe it's just because he realizes that if he opens the gates, Edmure's screwed either way. It's, it's not like this will save him. So, and also there's this whole Brendan maybe not wanting to be told what to do, just being stubborn. A Feast for Crows, Jamie 5. I would, but where to begin? 
Whilst I've been building rams and siege towers, Ryman Frey has raised a gibbet. Every day at dawn, he brings forth Edmure Tully, drapes a noose around his neck, and threatens to hang him unless the castle yields. The Blackfish pays his mummer's show no mind, so come evenfall, Lord Edmure is taken down again. So this goes on and on with neither side budging until Jamie shows up with more men and a better plan. He actually gets Brynden to a parlay on the river on Drawbridge, and... Jamie has, you know, decent intentions. He's, we know from his in- internal point of view that he's a lot different man than he is at the beginning of the series. Brendan Blackfish doesn't know this. Brendan mistrusts Jamie from the start, repeatedly calling him Kingslayer, not really even entertaining Jamie's offers. He basically says, I- I'm only out here because I'm bored. A Feast for Crows, Jamie Six. Are there any terms you will accept? He demanded of the Blackfish. From you, Sir Brendan shrugged. No. Why did you even come to treat with me? A siege is deadly dull. I wanted to see this stump of yours and hear whatever excuses you cared to offer up for your latest enormities. They were feebler than I'd hoped. You'd always disappoint, Kingslayer. The blackfish wheeled his mare and trotted back toward Riverrun. As I mentioned earlier, Brynden was a major hero of Jamie's when Jamie was young. So this is a pretty important point for Jamie's arc. One that George has repeated in a few places, which is the realism of meeting your heroes, your personal heroes. Usually, the hero, the person, doesn't measure up to the stories told about them. In this case, that's not the problem at all. Brynden does live up. It's just that Brynden hates Jamie and understandably is upset about the Red Wedding, calls Jamie's honor into question, and as someone that adheres to a code of honor, Brendan, to them for the most part, he just, you know, has nothing but disdain for Jamie. So imagine being Jamie and having someone you, you know, idolize just look down on you with disdain like that. It doesn't feel good. I mean, Jamie can handle it. He's, a, <laughs> he's, a, he's an adult. But still, it didn't feel good. But he does his best impression of Tywin, you know, being dispassionate, doing his thing while holding a war council. And this is interesting because a lot of the river lords are in this council and they have this great high opinion of Blackfish. Stubborn, to be respected. And this war council includes the aforementioned Norbert Vance, now old and blind, who, remember, Brendan squired with him. He offers to try to talk to Brendan and maybe convince him, you know, a familiar face. But that's not what happens. Jamie instead goes himself to Edmure, convinces him to release Riverrun because he's the Lord of Riverrun. And, you know, and if you don't, I'm going to, you know, shoot your kid on a trebuchet. So this finally works. The Lannisters and Freys take the castle, but they have a little bit of a surprise when they take control. A Feast for Crows, Jamie Seven. He did swim, said Edmure, sullenly. He had the same blue eyes as his sister Catelyn, and Jamie saw the same loathing that he'd once seen in hers. We raised the portcullis on the water gate. Not all the way, just three feet or so. Enough to leave a gap under the water, though the gate still appeared to be closed. My uncle is a strong swimmer. After dark, he pulled himself beneath the spikes. So Brendan manages to pull off one of the better escapes in the series, kind of like his namesake's archenemy, Bittersteel swimming under a barely raised portcullis and swimming down a river. That's a pretty impressive feat for any man, let alone one approaching his 60s. Though he did grow up in the Riverlands, which probably means he knows how to swim. (laughs) And that's the last we see of Brendan Blackfish as he heads out into the Riverlands. Jamie sends scouts after him, hunting parties, is pretty confident that they'll catch him, but they don't. 
Throughout this episode, we've made a lot of comparisons between Brendan and Barrish and Selmy. And here's yet another. The two were similar in their youth and similar in their later years. Both were dismissed slash chased out by Lannisters, as it goes, and forced to go on the run and to find a new slash old cause. In the case of Barristan, Tywin makes a shrewd point. A Game of Thrones, Tyrion 9. And dismissing Selmy, where was the sense in that? Yes, the man was old, but the name of Barristan the Bold still has meaning in the realm. He lent honor to any man he served. Tywin was dead on. The name Barristan the Bold held a lot of esteem, and so does the name Blackfish. As with Barristan being dismissed slash disappearing with no one really knowing where to find him until he popped up to support Daenerys, we can assume Brynden is going to do a very similar thing. Although, it won't involve going to Essos or Daenerys. <laughs> it's worth noting that Jamie claims he intended to let Blackfish take the Black. Yeah, his name kind of already fits it, right? But no. I think Jamie's telling the truth there. But it's not a sure thing. But you could argue that Brendan would rather die defending his homeland anyway. It's interesting to consider, though, what he would have thought of such an offer. We know the Night's Watch is desperate for men. Someone like Brendan would be really helpful right there. And he's already got the, you know, the right color cult clothing to go along with it. But Brendan seems to share his niece's disdain for Lord Commander Jon Snow, right? Catelyn hated Jon Snow. And Brendan may not have a great opinion of him. But in the conversation with Jamie, he indicates that he doesn't trust John. Maybe he's just saying that. You know, maybe he's doing a mummer impersonation here to, to prevent John from becoming a target. If he dis disavows friendship or interest in John, maybe that helps keep John safer. Remember, Rob names John his heir in his will, and maybe Blackfish knows this. Blackfish wasn't there. He was already left behind when Rob wrote his will. Rob wrote his will after having left Blackfish behind. So he might not know about it. But if he did, this would definitely, he wouldn't want to say, yeah, I like Jon Snow. He would want to be like, ah, I hate that guy. I don't, you know, he's got nothing to do with me. He would want to keep him safe. But it's, it's kind of fun to imagine the possibilities there because it could be just a simple, straightforward, Catelyn mentioned him. <laughs> so he shares the opinion of, of his uh, niece there. But we don't. We don't know what he did. We don't know where he went. We don't know whether he knows about John being the heir. And we don't know where he's going. But we definitely have some great ideas that I think you'll like. Future fish. So there are many possibilities for what the blackfish can do with his relative freedom. Even though he's a hunted man, he is out there and capable. It's a safe bet that the Tully words, though, that's where we should look to kind of get a guideline. Honor, I think, will take distant third place right now because family and duty are really going to demand his time and he doesn't exactly have a lot of family out there so it really helps us narrow it down Edmure is obvious as a possibility but there's also Arya and Sansa and Robert Aaron who is his who is his great nephew he has no idea where Arya and Sansa are for the most part so there's not a lot of reason for him to think about them and of course I left out Brandon Rickon because like most people he thinks they're dead speaking of dead well, it's probably going to be not long, if he's, unless it's already happened off screen, that he's found out about Catelyn. So that's his family. But his greatest duty is to his deceased king, who is also a great nephew, and Rob's queen, Jane Westerling, who he's sworn to protect. So let's see what happens next. The Brotherhood Without Blackfish 
there's an outside chance that Brendan is going to head back to the Vale. He's, he's obviously going to have ties there because of Sweet Robin. And Sweet Robin is a young man with no one to protect him. And Peter Baelish is in charge of him. So that's a risky bridge to build on now, though, because that's kind of far away. And we don't really know what Brendan knows about Littlefinger and what opinion he has of him. But he's probably not a fan. <laughs> the other aspect is that one of his last kin is in the Vale with Sansa. But he doesn't know that either, like we said earlier. It would be interesting if he goes there, because if he sees her, I mean, Littlefinger points out repeatedly that Sansa is the spitting image of Catelyn at the same age. And of course, Brendan would catch that too, if he sees her. If he sees her. But it doesn't seem likely. But if he does, if she sees him, is that maybe her way out? Be like, hey, uncle... Get me the heck out of here. <laughs> but Littlefinger would see that coming. If Blackfish shows up, he's going to know, oh, better hide her. But I don't think this is very likely. I think that the Riverlands is far more likely. It's his home. It's where the kingdom is. And it's where, you know, where his most important family members are. So seeking out the Brotherhood without banners seems by far the most likely. It's also what Jamie is worried about him doing. The new lord of Riverrun, Emmon Frey, freaked out when he heard Blackfish escaped. They perhaps have already sought him out, meaning the Brotherhood. Here's why. Jamie leaves Edmure alone with Tom O'Sevens, the singer, a scene clearly not meant for casual fans to get. Not only is Tom the same singer who made the song mocking Edmure's floppy fish, Jamie thinks he's tormenting Edmure by leaving him alone with him, and that is what it looks like. But... Tom is a member of the Brotherhood Without Banners, and no doubt they had a very interesting conversation, him and Ed Muir. One might think Blackfish came up in that conversation and his need to escape. This is a potential match made in heaven. Check this out. By this point in the story, the Brotherhood is already killing Frey's left, right, and center. Brendan's going to be all about that. <laughs> he would also be aware that through all, all the war, the Brotherhood have been helping out the small folk, killing Lannisters, and generally siding with the Tullys, uh, at least siding with their agenda. So that certainly makes sense and is a great fit. And of course, you haven't forgotten Brendan's skill set that he displayed not only in the War of the Five Kings, but probably before. The Brotherhood are good at what they do, but Brendan is a master of this sort of thing. His experience with scouts, knowing the land, knowing the enemy, just tactics, all that stuff. Brendan would be perfect as a new like type commander of the Brotherhood. They would just do so well under him. Mixing them with his level of expertise is it's pretty exciting, I got to say. But the interesting part about all this is, and it's really hard to predict, is again meeting his niece. Lady Stoneheart, what is he going to do? What is he going to react to her? Like, is it going to really creep him out? Or is he just going to roll with it? Be like, well, she's killing Freys and Lannisters and that's what I want to do. This is creepy as heck, but it's working. Or would he just get really angry? You know, would he be like, this is wrong. This is of the seven hells or something. I don't know what he would call it, but maybe he would want to end her suffering. Or I don't know. It's really, this is, this is a difficult call here. But as long as he has living family, <laughs> living family that's going to take priority over revenge, even though revenge might be mm, easier to get at this point. I do think with his skills, he might be able to manage both. Let's keep that in mind. We know Jamie and Brienne are headed back to Lady Stoneheart, so perhaps this is even an opportunity for Brendan and Jamie to meet again, because Brendan may already be with them. At that point in which Brienne comes and tricks Jamie to leave his army, Blackfish may be already among them. 
So we may get some back and forth between Jamie and the Blackfish again, and maybe we'll see Brienne and Blackfish do some chatting. That would be kind of cool. The Brotherhood with Blackfish. We've been looking at everything through a Brendan-tinted lens. That's hard to say fast. Given that this is an episode about him, but let's take a look from another point of view. The Brotherhoods in this case. Obviously, they're going to be aware of who he is, but it goes farther than that. A good number of the lads in the Brotherhood are simple folk from the Riverlands. They aren't professional soldiers. You know, they don't raise banners, hence the name. (laughs) They're simply just swept up in the carnage of war. But all of them, to a man, have heard of the Blackfish. They've been fighting the phrase. It's been a hard war. It's been a hard life. And then in walks this hero that they've been hearing stories about since they were born. A knight famous outside of the Riverlands throughout the entire Seven Kingdoms. So this is a game changer for them. It's like morale is really important in war. And getting this guy on their side, boom, that's a huge boost to morale all around. And the Brotherhood are not, you know, like I said, it's a hard life. They're falling apart a bit, you know. So this could really pump some energy into them. Do you remember how Jamie grew up idolizing the Blackfish? And Jamie is the son of the most powerful lord in the kingdom and the youngest ever to join the Kingsguard. And and he idolizes Blackfish. So if Jamie feels that way, just imagine how the small folk feel about the Blackfish. And as we mentioned with Barristan, honor and fame are, are part of the package. After months or years of living in caves and hanging people, commanded by a walking corpse, Blackfish again, coming in there, that's going to shine a little light on things. And of course, you know, the non-Riverlanders, it's still the name Tully. I mean, the Tullys are one of the great houses, and they get to serve under him, and not an undead Tully, which they were serving under before. <laughs> it lends purpose, and it might even be possible that a few of these outliers can be maybe redeemed. You know, being around Brendan, maybe by it's those who survive the war, if any of them do, being around a, a guy like him might, you know, have a trickle-down effect on their personalities. Maybe it'll make them more honorable in the long run. And since Lady Stoneheart started calling the shots, they have not exactly behaved with honor. They've gotten darker and darker, which is possibly why Brendan won't get along with this group so well. As great a fit as it seems, it might not actually work out. It just comes down to what his attitude is going to be, what his goals are going to be, and how other people view him. He, and again, he's not terribly sentimental or compassionate. So he might be willing to get his hands dirty to work with the undead, to work with these bandits, if it means killing Lannisters and Freys. Hips do lie, after all. So for a while, there was a popular theory that Brendan escaped with Jane Westerling, who many believed to be pregnant with Rob's heir, and was trying to get her safety. Uh, and ignoring the considerable logistics of helping a pregnant young woman swim through the river, there's a, a roadblock to this theory. The reason the theory exists is because Catelyn and Jamie's description of Jane Westerling's hips were very different. And this is, of course would normally be major evidence. Unfortunately, George confirmed that it was a mistake. So that's it. The hips, they do lie. So we just have to lay that theory to rest. Brendan's almost certainly by himself. So where's he going to go? Obviously, we talked about the Brotherhood being kind of hard to find, but of course, they may have found him. And Jamie's war council, and in various conversations, it's pretty clear that a lot of the Riverlords aren't happy with their current circumstance. So if things start to turn... And they hear that Brendan is part of the reason why. It may encourage them to switch sides sooner than they might have because of their hero being out there doing the work that they 
by honor feel that they should be doing too. It probably shamed a lot of them to bend the knees to the Lannisters, and they would love to have a second chance to do the right thing. There's even the outside chance that he goes north, right? You know, to Mage Mormont and, and to do all that. But I really don't think so. We should consider it, but he's a Riverlands man, and he's a family man, and he probably wants revenge. And revenge is there where he already is. No need to go anywhere else. So in summary, Brendan is quiet, except when he's not, <laughs> plain and reserved, giving him an air of mystery in addition to his badassery. And he loves his family and his home, but he also expelled hundreds of small folk and was willing for the garrison of Riverrun to die if it meant taking a few thousand Freys and Lannisters with them, despite the fact that it seemed certain that no military victory could be achieved. Is this an endearing last stand or pointless stubbornness or pride? It's one of the most divisive opinions among fans about a single character. It's probably one of those arguments that's going to live forever. We're not going to know. We're not going to. It's about, it's a moral conundrum. Brendan is also a key example, despite being a simple character, of being complex at the same time. Sure, he's a knight, a shining beacon of honor, but he's a master of ambush, of scouting, and tactical advantage. Not traits generally connected to knighthood. This could be a decent clue that honor is something that Brendan adheres to where possible and something he'll put aside when he needs to. When push comes to shove, he wants results, not glory. Especially when family weighs in the balance. He's certainly not perfect by any standard, but among the Westerosi characters we know well, he's one of the better ones, as far as morals and ethics go, but still far from perfect. Another comparison to Barristan Selmy here, who we see struggle with his possible past choices, like... Danny and Marine, and due to oath he's sworn and how the politics are all just the kind of thing he doesn't want to be involved with I would think Brendan would also not take as long to make a decision <laughs> more importantly though is who Brendan has been an acclaimed warrior in the war of Ninepenny Kings a steadfast rock against the tide of tradition in terms of marriage a clearly loving uncle and a difference maker in the war of five kings he shows us another side of the old knights that litter the story and provides a complex juxtaposition as a man who both loves his family and yet is willing to be separate from it entirely. There's no character like him. Without a doubt, there's only one black fish in those rivers. Stay tuned after the credits for a brief extra thought on the Blackfish's future based on a To the Winds of Winter spoiler. Producer of this episode was Ashea. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and outro. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for the intro and outro music. Thanks to Mikal Schick of Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast at Hypable.com for the female voices. Thanks to Martin Lewis of Echoes of Ice and Fire for the section readings. Thanks again to Joe Buckley and Rainy Stargarian for helping write this episode. Thanks to Lord Rob the Bilt, stoneborn writer of the Unicorn Desolation. Thanks to the mysterious BR, Hand of the King. Thanks to Lord Michael Velaryon, Knight of High Tide and Guardian of the DeLorean, Hand of the Queen. Lady Suzanne Sinistral, the Learned, Holder of the Left-Handed Valyrian Shears called Tenants, Hand of the Beard. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire Blog and Warden of the West and host of the Two-Wage War podcast. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Beth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. 
Charlotte Oster as Corsair Queen of the Western Shivering Sea, commander of the Briny Fleet, whose flagship is the barnacle-encrusted Violet Hull Mercenaria. She carries the nacre-inlaid shucking blade, Crassler. Ships from both fleets have been engaged in battle in recent days, and the conflict could escalate, thanks to Sir Valentin of House to Jen, creator of the Game of Predictions. Our small council is Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers, Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows, Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Rosie the Clever, Master of Laws. Lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Diarliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt, Lord of Castle Ganges, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood, Lady of Desert Rose, Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate, Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter of the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre, leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglades. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Donhole. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and holder of the Vorkal Snugglebunny. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Ironwood. Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenhal. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Queen's High Council is Lady Jane of House Celtigar, the Emerald of the Evening, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe Painkiller, Mistress of Sea Eagles, and Mistress of Ships. Lady Mai of House Swan is Mistress of Whispers. Helia of Upstate is Master of Coin. Grand Maester M. Elizabeth is Middle Daughter of Lyanna Mormont, First Lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. Bold Betha of House Copperhoof is Still Waters Run Deep, Master of Laws. The Council of Beard is led by Grand Maester Clark, Protector of Wisdom and Beards. Our King's Guard is led by Lord Commander Sir Christopher Dane of Starfall, Sentinel of the Torrentine. Our Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Helena Helmet, the Sellsword Sentinel. Lady Nymeria of House Seapertle. Alexander of House Atreides, from the Seat of Dune, I Must Not Fear. Fear is the Mind Killer. Jane Grey, Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North, and Sir Eric Redbeard Odinson, wielder of Tempest, a monstrous warhammer. The Beard Guard is Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, Lady Rita, the Coppermane, Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red, and Brown, Stay Frosty, Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort, Avenging the Memory of Brave Danny, First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastion of Greenshield, First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom, and First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Pale Wind. I had a little extra tidbit that I was going to save after the credits. And the reason, of course, is because it involves, well, Winds of Winter spoiler. Not from one of the Winds of Winter chapters, but something George said in an interview. Now, of course, there's a lot of Winds of Winter fan theories, including Brynden, like the attempted rescue of Edmure and Jane Westerling, because they're being moved from River Run to Casterly Rock. And Jamie's very worried about this. He gives Forley Prester, a knight who Jamie trusts, a hundred men. And then says, double it. And then he says, double it again, as his suspicions grow and he thinks about it more. He's worried about the possibility of ambush. And here's where the little T-Wow spoiler comes in. George said that the prologue of The Winds of Winter will include Jane Westerling. So include her probably means that she's not the point of view. It might be Prester himself. It could be Blackfish himself. It could be one of the other characters in this party. 
But there's a decent chance that we see Blackfish in the prologue of The Winds of Winter involving some sort of attempt to bring Jane Westerling back, to capture her, to cap- get, get her back, uh, to rescue her, etc. And I'm very much looking forward to that. It's one of the fun things about this episode that gives it a little extra juice is the idea that Brendan might be the, one of the very first characters we see when we finally get The Winds of Winter, whenever that comes. So that's it. That's all a little tidbit is. We don't have much to go on, of course, because it's just a little snippet from George, but it's definitely worth thinking about. And that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See you next time.